Well, good morning. My name is Mark Hoffman. I'm also one of the elders here and director of worship as well. And it's a pleasure to to be preaching the word and to uh, just be engaging in God's word together this morning. So as we prepare to do that, let me just pray for us today. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for your presence here among us today. God, here we say that our, uh, everything we're about here is knowing, loving, and becoming like Jesus. And we just, Lord, we ask you that you would do that in us today because it's not something we can just do ourselves. Lord, help us to know Christ, to love him more deeply today, to be shaped more into his image today. We pray that you would do this by the working of your word and your spirit. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. General Dwight D. Eisenhower's Order of the Day, June 6, 1944. Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force, soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade, toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hope and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940 and 41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle man-to-man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck. And let us beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Signed, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Probably wondering, why did I read that today? Since the start of World War II, there were preparations being made for a military invasion of the European continent. Now those preparations were over. The time had come for the Allies to advance and to make the dangerous and deadly landing on the beaches of Normandy and to initiate the final push to victory. D-Day, as it was called. It wasn't the beginning of the war, and it wasn't the end of the war. But as a strategic mission of primary importance, a critical turning point, we can look back now and recognize that D-Day was the beginning of the end of World War II. And so far in the Gospel of Matthew, we have seen another conflict unfold. 
one far greater in scope even than that of World War II. Because the King, Jesus Christ, has come to reclaim what is rightfully his. He has come to save his people from their sins. We've seen preparations being made. John the Baptist came preparing the way, calling people to repentance. Jesus was immersed in the water of sinners, proclaimed by the Father to be his beloved Son, and then tested by Satan in the wilderness. But now all these events are past, and the time has come for King Jesus to advance. It's time for Christ to initiate his mission of saving his people from their sins, a mission that will end in a great and decisive victory at the cross. This passage of scripture found in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, may not seem quite that important or dramatic, but it is. It is. Like World War II, we know the end of the story. A lot will happen between here and the cross, but what we witness here in this passage of Scripture and the unfolding narrative of the gospel is the beginning of the end of the earthly mission of Jesus Christ to save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So John the Baptist had been arrested. He was imprisoned by Herod Antipas, or also known as Herod the Tetrarch. He was one of the sons of Herod the Great. And the text here doesn't tell us why John the Baptist was arrested. Those details are revealed later on in the the gospel, so we have to just leave that bit of detail here, and we'll, we'll find out more about that later on. But with John the Baptist now in prison, it seems that Jesus recognizes that his mission has entered a new phase. John's role was to be the voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. Well, now John's voice has been silenced. And the time of preparation is over, and Jesus knows that it's time to embark on his mission. The text says that Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And you can see on the map, uh, this is kind of what that region looked like at the time. Galilee is in the farther northern reaches of what was once Israel. And when the 12 tribes of Israel came into this land way back in the Old Testament, the tribes of Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali settled in these far northern regions. And up in this part of Israel, they weren't able to actually fully drive out all the Canaanites of the area. So even way back from those early days, there was already a bit of a mixture of people there. And as you trace through the history of Israel, this area was, of course, taken over and resettled, by foreign powers, and and now by Jesus' day, even though there still was a substantial Jewish population living there, uh, it was still very much a mixed group of people and cultures living there. Which is why we see it referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. In the original Greek language of the New Testament, 
That word for Gentiles is ethnos. And for a Jewish person, they would understand this as referring to anyone non-Jewish, an other group of people. And in the New Testament, ethnos is often translated as Gentiles, probably over half the time. But most of the other times, ethnos is translated as nations. So we can look at this region as Galilee of the Gentiles or Galilee of the nations, an international region populated by Jews and non-Jews alike. So Jesus goes to Galilee of the nations. And it says, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Capernaum, you can see it there. In those days, it was an important fishing and trade center of the area. It was also a a polling tax center for the Roman Empire in those days. And Capernaum will turn out to be a very important place in the the life and ministry of Jesus as he teaches there and performs miracles there and, and calls disciples there as well. But we should notice, too, that Jesus is not retreating into Galilee to hide out in his boyhood home. He's not running home to mama. In fact, it's likely that the the reason Jesus left Nazareth is because of the story that Stuart told last week, where Jesus went into his hometown synagogue and got up in front of all of his neighbors and proclaimed himself to be the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Well, that rubbed people the wrong way. And they got so offended, they tried to throw him off a cliff. But he passed through their midst. And he went on his way and settled in Capernaum. And as he goes to Capernaum, he advances his ministry there. The text says he withdrew. But make no mistake, he's not running away. He did not withdraw into Galilee to avoid conflict. Jesus did not come to retreat. He came to redeem. And as we move through the Gospel of Matthew, we cannot lose sight of what we have learned from the very beginning of the Gospel, that Jesus is King, and he has come to save his people from their sins. Jesus is on a mission. And he will go to great lengths, he will go to the farthest reaches of the nations, and he will not be deterred as he seeks his people to liberate them from the oppression of sin. Verses 14 and 16 go on. Why did Jesus go to Galilee? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Once again, as we've been seeing all throughout the Gospel of Matthew thus far, biblical prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this particular prophecy is found in Isaiah chapter 9. So I'd like to turn there and read it and actually read a little bit more of it in its context. Isaiah chapter 9. I'll read verses 1 through 7. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here we are again in the Gospel of Matthew. One of the great messianic prophecies of all of Scripture fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And as we expand and read this prophecy in its context, we see once again the proclamation that Jesus is king, that he is seated on the throne of David, ruling with righteousness and justice forever, establishing unending peace and prosperity. He is mighty God, and yet also born as a child. The son who is given to us, having come to put an end to the oppression of his people, to multiply them, to increase their joy. What an awesome picture of King Jesus and his kingdom. So let's circle back to Matthew chapter 4 for a second. Verse 16. Here's how Matthew quotes the prophecy. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So let's talk about darkness and light in the Bible for a second. Darkness is often used metaphorically in Scripture to describe all sorts of really negative spiritual things. Sin, judgment, ignorance, misery, impurity, death. And light, on the other hand, symbolizes forgiveness, freedom, truth, understanding, and life. And the people being described here are dwelling in the darkness. But that word dwelling doesn't really capture the full impact. This word for dwelling can also mean sitting. And several other translations actually render it that way. These people are sitting in the darkness. The sense is that is their perpetual state of being to just sit there in the dark. How many of you have ever been in a cave before? 
A lot of you. You made it out. Congratulations. I will never forget, as a young boy, our family took a vacation to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. And it had such an impression on me, even I was very young, and I still remember this, so it obviously did. I'll never forget going on the cave tour, being in this massive underground cave, and the stalactites and stalagmites, I still don't remember which one's which, but... I was so impressed, and we were deep inside Mammoth Cave, and I remember the tour guide telling us, okay, now everyone just stand where you are, stand still, I'm going to turn out all the lights. So all the lights go off, and if you have never experienced that before, I can tell you it is quite an experience. It's kind of hard to describe the depth of the darkness. It just completely envelops you. It feels impenetrable. It's kind of scary if you're a little kid, I can tell you that. And you're just frozen because you don't know where anything is. So you're just stuck, unable to move, enveloped in the darkness. I think that's the picture that we have here of the people sitting in the darkness. They're stuck. Their whole existence is to sit there completely enveloped in the darkness of sin and judgment and ignorance and misery and impurity and death. These people are in bondage to the darkness, but here comes King Jesus. And he is on a mission. Jesus comes as the great light. In Greek, the word for great is mega. Jesus brings the mega light into the darkness. It is great in its intensity. It is great in its scope. Jesus comes and he shines his mega light on his people who have been sitting still in the darkness, and in the shadow of death. The New Testament uses this language over and over and over again. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Ephesians 5.8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 1 Thessalonians 5, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. 2 Corinthians 4.6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Are you thankful for the light of Christ today? Amen. King Jesus will go to great lengths to achieve his mission. He will not be deterred. He goes to the farthest reaches, he goes to all nations and to the darkest of places to seek out his people who are sitting 
in the darkness of sin and to shine on them his mega light of forgiveness and freedom and truth and understanding and life to save his people from their sins. Verse 17 goes on. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From that time, this wording indicates an important turning point in the gospel narrative. Only two other times in Matthew are these words used. Here in chapter 4, from that time, Jesus began to preach. In Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and on the third day be raised. And in Matthew chapter 26, from that time, Judas Iscariot sought an opportunity to betray him. These are big points on the gospel timeline. From that time here, Jesus began to preach. This is a critical moment in salvation history. This is the beginning of the end. So Jesus began to preach. It doesn't just say Jesus preached. He began to preach. In other words, the text here is emphasizing that Jesus is initiating an ongoing act of preaching and proclamation. So as Jesus launches his kingdom campaign, he enters the theater of war on mission, armed with his word and preaching this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the same message that John the Baptist preached. And now coming from the mouth of Jesus himself, his message gains even more force. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I thought Mark Barnes explained this really well a few weeks back. Speaking of repentance, the word repent doesn't simply mean to just confess or to be sorry. It means a complete turnaround, a total transformation. And in the biblical understanding, it is to turn away from something, and implied in that turning away, there is also a turning toward, facing another direction. When we repent, we are turning from a sin or a habit or a lifestyle or a mindset or some trivial folly, whatever it is, that has turned us in the wrong direction and has us pointing away from God We turn away from that and turn toward God in submission to his will. And here this word repent is plural and it is imperative. Jesus is saying you all must repent. We all must turn to Jesus and submit to him as our savior and king. And why must we all repent? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you're looking at an ESV Bible, which is the translation that I'm using today, you might notice a little footnote on that verse. 
that gives us an alternate reading instead of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It says, like you see on the screen, the kingdom of heaven has come near. I think this is helpful in our understanding of what Jesus is saying, what he is preaching here. When I think of something is at hand, I think of it as being kind of handy, like, you know, my remote control is at hand so I can (laughs) grab it and change the channel. But that doesn't seem particularly imminent. But Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven has come near. The underlying construction of the original text gives the sense of an incredibly imminent closeness. Places emphasis on this nearness as if Jesus is saying really and truly near is the kingdom of heaven. And I think implied here there's both a nearness of chronology, the kingdom is coming closer every day, and there's a nearness of proximity because the king himself is near and he is proclaiming this message. The kingdom of heaven is near, and this kingdom isn't necessarily a place or a nation, but it is everyone and everything that submits to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. So putting all of this together here in one verse of Scripture, Matthew 4.17 is a critical turning point in the gospel story where from that time Jesus has begun an ongoing proclamation saying you all must turn away from the sin and cares and distractions of this world and turn in submission to God because really and truly near is the rule and reign of the king. And when Jesus says, you all must repent, is he leaving any one of us out? No. He's talking to all of us. Believers and non-believers alike, Jesus is preaching to us all. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, it says this. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's clear here that everyone will bow the knee to King Jesus. The question is, will you do so willingly now? Jesus came to save people like me and you from sin and from death. That is his mission, finished at the cross when he took our punishment upon himself. Having lived the perfect life we could never live, He died the sinner's death that we deserved. 
Jesus Christ won the victory over sin at the cross and declared victory over the grave at his resurrection. The king has triumphed. And the king has drawn near to proclaim his message to you that you should repent and turn away from sin and turn to him in faith for forgiveness and for eternal life. Jesus has gone to great lengths to reach you. No matter how far away you think you are, no matter how deep the darkness you think you are sitting in, He is seeking you with his mega light. Why continue to sit in the dark? By faith, open your eyes to the light of Christ. By faith, and find life abundant and eternal in him. Jesus is preaching to you, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Church, Jesus is preaching to us too. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's preaching to all of us. For as Christians, we are called to a life of repentance. As the Puritan Lewis Bailey wrote, all of Scripture is a call to repent and believe. Its purpose is to either strengthen our faith or to increase our repentance, because repent and believe is the whole sum of a true Christian's profession. Every moment of every day is an opportunity for us to repent in some way, to turn away from the sin and the distraction and the folly of this world and to turn toward our King in greater submission and obedience. If you want to live out your life in the light of Jesus Christ, live a life of repentance. Or as John the Baptist put it, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is the life that we are called to. Now, not only does this passage signal the beginning of the end of Christ's victorious mission to save his people from their sins, it's also a picture of the mission that our king has given us to carry forward until his return. Here in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this points directly to the end of the gospel and what we know as the Great Commission. In the final verses of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 18, 19, and 20, the last three verses, Jesus says this to his disciples, and see if you can notice any parallels here. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did you catch any connections there? This is Christ 
handing off his mission to us. Jesus tells us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why? Because Jesus is king. Jesus tells us to go. Why? To follow his example. Because he himself went to great lengths. He didn't withdraw. He did not retreat. He went. Jesus tells us to make disciples of all nations. Why? Because he also went first to the nations, to ethnos. Same word. To shine his light into the darkness. And now he sends us to be the light of the world to the ethnos, to the nations. Jesus tells us to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why? Christ identified with us in his baptism and now we identify with him in our baptism. Jesus came to save his people from their sins and baptism marks us as his people. We are now his, the objects of his mission of salvation and bearing the name of the triune God. Jesus tells us to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. What has Christ commanded us? Repent. You all must repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. We must all turn away from sin and turn toward God. Jesus tells us, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why? The kingdom of heaven is near. Because the king himself is really and truly near in both chronology and in proximity. He is with us always to the end of the age. Christ has commissioned us. He has shared his mission with us to be carried out. We are quite literally on a co-mission with Jesus now. And think about it. Any little way that we can point people to Christ, we are helping them to repent. To turn their attention toward God. Certainly when we share the gospel, we are pointing people to Christ. But when we say to our neighbor, I'll pray for you about that. Or when we show the character of Christ, the compassion of Christ to someone who needs it, we are helping to point them toward Christ, to turn their attention away from the things of this world and to turn their attention towards Jesus Christ. We're shining light into their darkness. The mission that Christ began in Matthew 4, he has now given to us in these last days. Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and he keeps on preaching through us, through his people. We are now part of the king's mission. The eyes of the world are upon us. As we speak the gospel of Jesus against the tyranny of sin and shine the light of Christ into the darkness, let us be people of repentance and of commission. Our task will not be an easy one. 
Our enemy, Satan, is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But Christ is king, and the victory is his. By his spirit, he has given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves. The tide has turned, and we are marching together to victory. Let us beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Let's pray.